What's up, witches? Today I'm doing something a little bit different on the podcast. I am a vocational astrologer and I love astrology. I love every form of divination and that's a big part of how I work with clients. However, there's this whole, like entire other half of my practice, which is more traditional, you could say. Um, it's more rooted in higher education. And I have my CCC, I have my certified career counseling certification. And I know that there's a lot of different ways to get certified. There's also different like life coaching programs. But I wanted to give you guys a little bit of detail, I guess, into my background and what it really means for me to hold this certification. And then I'm also going to share with you a theory that has been super useful for me, but also I've noticed I've been using it a lot with clients recently in my practice. And so let's get into it. This will be especially interesting for anyone who has a big value on certifications and credentials, which you don't have to have. I think there's a lot, a lot of really incredible practitioners out there doing really good work that don't have these things. It's within my value system. And I know that a handful of the people that choose to work with me do like the fact that I have certifications and that I hold licenses and that I do have, you know, a long, um, I guess, like history in higher education. I have my undergraduate degree in psychology with a distinction in leadership. And then I have a master's degree in career counseling. And so being a certified career counselor I actually have this. This was more than just like an online certification program. It My master's program was so rooted in career development theory that it was approved that when I graduated, I could like earn these credentials because I studied career development and counseling for two solid years. And then to maintain that licensure, I have to do so many hours of continued education to ensure that I am not only refining the skills that I learned, but that I'm also staying up to date on what is like cutting edge research or what is like the newest trend in the industry. And so I'm really proud of having this credential of having my CCC, my certified career counseling license. And even though by day I'm an HR witch, you know, I'm a human resources professional, by night or on the side, I work with people on career development and I help them through career transition and career exploration. And I incorporate astrology and tarot and energy work, mindfulness, and all of this into my practice. And it's very, very much rooted in the theory that I studied while I was at university and while I was practicing using this with clients in career centers at different universities. I think that for me, because while astrology and tarot and some of these other esoteric or occult-like practices have a long tradition, they don't fit cleanly into the scientific method. And I don't think that they need to. I don't think that things have to be studied in the same way to be useful to people. However, I have enough Capricorn in my nature that I like to incorporate that which has been studied 
that which has been tested and is seen as reliable and valid across multiple groups and has had a lot of research to support this theory. And so the theory I'm going to share a little bit with you today is one that I've talked about in an earlier episode of my podcast. But like I said, this is coming up a lot for me recently, like as I've been working with clients and as I've been having conversations about career with important people in my life, this one is coming to mind. So I want to revisit it and maybe go into it with a little bit more depth. So the theory I'm going to be talking about today is Gottfriedson's theory of circumscription and compromise. This theory in particular is seen as a developmental theory, which means that we're looking at an individual's lifespan in terms of career development, that these early interactions we have with the concept of career and vocation that starts in childhood begins forming our belief around this. And therefore, as we are making decisions or starting to engage in the world of work and vocation, it's really being shaped by what we were exposed to and these beliefs that we started coming up with, um, you know, in, in childhood, really. And it's funny because one thing that we talked a lot about in my program is how inappropriate it is to ask young children what they want to be when they grow up. And I talked about this in my Saturn cycle in the job search episode. I believe it's episode number two, if you want to go back and listen to that. Um, but we start like really um, developing these ideas and opinions around the world of work as children. And so asking them, what do you want to be when you grow up is difficult because the world of work will be totally different by the time they're old enough to even enter and engage in the world of work. But we start encouraging children to form these opinions and these beliefs around work and what is what is um, an option for them what is accessible to them you know here are six choices now pick and it's really hard for us to break out of this when we're adults i think one thing that i think is really compelling about this theory as well is that as an astrologer i always talk about the nuance in your chart you know um tons of people can have their midheaven and aries or something like that but where does the nuance come from in you know the choices that we make and that's because there is context outside of the natal chart even though these individuals can have well it's the same thing of like if you if you have children born at the exact same time and so they are like natal chart twins right their rising sign may be different only by a degree but otherwise they share identical charts how can they still have such different experiences and it's the idea that no two children are raised by the same parents like the way that we interact with our external environment and the things that we are exposed to because there are personality preferences but there's also noise in our external environment that are all influencing and engaging with us. And so our level of access, our our belief systems and our privilege all vary no matter how identical our natal placements are or something like that. And so I love this theory because it really brings in some of that nuance and it helps explain why individuals have different expectations around vocation and career, even when they are children, like especially when they are children. And it really varies by... um by like your sex or gender, your race or ethnicity, as well as your social class or your socioeconomic status. 
And actually in the book um, that we used in my master's program, and I referenced this earlier, this is the Career Theory in Practice, Learning Through Case Studies, written by Jane L. Swanson and Nadia A. Faud. Hmm, probably pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, but in this book, they use the example from Gottfriedson Theory that was published in 2005. The earlier one was in 1996. But in 2005, they talk about how there could be a thousand newborns in their cribs and they're completely as newborns unaware of the differences among themselves. You know, young, young babies don't think about how, okay, well, you're a boy and I'm a girl or, you know, whatever that is. Like they don't, they don't have this awareness, but in 15 to 20 years, they've all developed really similar perceptions of jobs and of different like occupations available to them. Um, and in quotations, it says they will have reproduced most of the class and gender differences of the parent generation. And so this theory really tries to tackle, like, how does this happen? <laughs> like, why? Why does this happen that they, you know, were born as like this, like fresh slate in this palette. And then, um, you know, what are the details for how we like grow and develop? And then we all kind of have these same beliefs or relationships to career. And they really are modeled after our parents and what, you know, they gift to us through raising us. And I use the word gift, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a gift that we want to receive, um, but for whatever reason, we have this here. And so Gottfriedson outlines four developmental processes that provide this explanation. And that is number one, your cognitive growth, two, your self-creation, three is circumscription and four is compromise. And again, like this idea of circumscription and compromise is probably where I spend the most time talking with clients in session about their career. But I would love to start doing longer readings or having, you know, like a, a package where you do like three sessions with me so we can really get into the, uh, you know, the, the earlier, more developmental pieces of it because there is so much rich conversation to be had around these areas of this theory. And I want to incorporate my understanding of the natal chart. So if you are a career counselor and you're listening to this episode and you're already familiar with this theory, stick around because I'm going to be sharing more of my astrological perspective. If you are an astrologer listening to this episode and you do vocational readings for clients, then this will be really useful as well because, again, this is grounded and really well-researched and is one of like the standard theories that we learn about in career development. So if you want you know, more of that acumen in your practice, then this will be really interesting to you. And if you are just a fan of my work and you're listening to this because you care about your career, you're invested in your opportunity to provide loving service to others, but you want some more self-clarity, then you can listen to this and kind of walk yourself through this theory. And of course, I would love it if you booked a reading with me and we could actually you know, just ground ourselves in this theory and overlay it in your natal chart. Also, I have to apologize. I am feeling a little under the weather today and I hear it in my own voice. I'm a little bit nervous about how it's coming through on the microphone, but I do have um, a, a pretty serious sore throat today. And so I'm sorry if uh, there is some disruption in my voice or if you're hearing some of that scratch come through the microphone. So this first pillar, cognitive growth. So we are forming like neurological pathways in our brain, right? This is where our thoughts and ideas are able to race down well-established maps or channels, if you will, 
And this is how we can connect thoughts. This is how we start forming sentences. This is how we start using what we see in our environment and making decisions or making assumptions, making predictions about what is happening and how we should be reacting to this. And this actually starts happening when you are still in the womb. And this is why the ascendant sign in the chart is so critical in unlocking or really forming like a deep understanding. And I know that I've worked with clients recently that resonate way more with their ascendant sign than with their sun sign. And this isn't true for everyone, but your ascendant sign is such an important piece of this conversation in vocational astrology um, and in career development when you're using the natal chart to inform the way that you're working with clients. Because your ascendant sign is not like a mask that you wear. It's not like this thing that you take off and put back on. It's really your perspective of the world. It's like the lens that you see things through. And it gives a lot more insight into your origin story and your birth story. And a big piece of that is your neurology. A big piece of this is the way that you interpret what happens in your external world and therefore how you make decisions to engage with it going forward. Okay. I hope I haven't lost anyone yet. So this cognitive growth stage for me is really where you dig into the ascendant sign. And it's not just the ascendant sign, but because your rising sign in a whole sign house system in particular dictates the rest of your chart. If you are an Aries rising, then we know that you have cancer in the fourth house. If you're an Aquarius rising, we know that you have Taurus in the fourth house. So what does that mean? This is something that really helped accelerate my understanding of astrology and had a significant influence on how I worked with people in their charts. I'm, I could, I could seriously spend hours and hours and hours talking with someone about their natal chart without any planets in it. So long as I know their rising sign. And this is heavily influenced by my mentor in astrology. If you want to know who they are or what that looks like, go check out my website, www.thatwitchfromwork.com. And really like you can, you can glean so much just from understanding what it means to have a zodiac sign in a house in the chart. And this is why the ascendant sign is so critical and so important. You can do so much really interesting work with someone without ever putting a planet in the chart. So long as you know their rising sign, because this cognitive map that we have is critical in how we make decisions. And this starts really, really early. And so something that Gottfriedson actually points out is that as children, we start forming beliefs and opinions about vocation and the world of work before we have developed a sufficient cognitive complexity to do so in a way that is um, like that provides satisfaction to us. Okay, we know that like your brain doesn't actually like stop developing until what is it like age 25 or something like that. Um, your prefrontal cortex is one of the, the slower ones to develop. And so this is again, like where it's so difficult. It's like, stop asking children what they want to be when they grow up. Cause number one, they don't know a lot about the world of work, but they also, they don't have the cognitive functioning to really be able to start forming these beliefs or opinions or choosing what they want to do in you know, in a sufficient way. And it's hard about this because when we're children, we immediately start forming these opinions around work. And a lot of this actually comes from the fourth house, which is crazy because in vocational astrology, 
We talk about your sun, moon, and rising. We talk about your midheaven. We talk about the ruler of your midheaven. We talk about your, you know, your second, your sixth, and your tenth house. But the entire chart is rich with information on how we make these decisions. And the fourth house and the ascendant are fascinating because this, this ascendant line is really what is your neurology? As you were growing and as you were developing, what was going on with your, um, with your cognitive mapping and the way that you form perceptions around the world, but especially around career. And we know that there was such a strong influence from your caregivers that we have to talk about your fourth house, what's going on in your fourth house, whether it makes a, you know, an aspect to any of your other career placements or not. This has to be part of the conversation. And I want to use an example to help maybe bring this to life for people who are like, Jessica, you're talking a lot about theory and you're using these like, you know, you know, complex cognitive mapping and all this stuff. Like, what are you talking about? Let me, let me use an example. I have young children, you know, I have a daughter who is in kindergarten and when we talk about jobs, for example, like when we talk about work and the different things that are, you know, possible or things that she's interested in. When we say things, you know, like she loves doing yoga. And so I say things like, did you know that you could teach yoga when you grow up? Her brain thinks about this in one way. Does that sound fun? That's it. She's not having the abstract thoughts of, does that sound fun? And could it sustain my life? And what do I need to do to get there? And what else would I want to be doing? And all these other things. You think about it in a very like, like, a, you know, a single dimension. And you don't add all these layers of abstract thinking. Um, you're not able to map things to the rest of your brain, right? And so this is, again, why asking a child, oh, do you want to be like a police officer? Oh, do you want to be a teacher? Do you want to be an astronaut? They're really only thinking about it in one facet, and they're not yet able to think more broadly. And so they're starting to form, again, these opinions, but in a very like single dimension, um, you know, in a very uh, black and white, yes or no, does this fit in the box type way. They're also not approaching it from the perspective of self, like, would I like this, right? They don't really have a clear concept of self. And one of Parker Palmer's books, I don't remember the title of it now. I was reading it in an airport and it like just struck me of like, oh, this is such a fascinating bit of information. If I remember it, I'll put it in the show notes. But um, Parker J. Palmer is a brilliant author and I really love his work. And he was talking about how when we reach a certain age um, and it's about like five years old and in human development, this is like the Gemini phase of our life, uh, we start to split our personality. We start to try on different identities. We start to experiment with our own self-concept by trying on what we see in others' personalities. And this is a big part of like our self-creation. This is a big part of how we clarify who we are. Um, and it's, it's really, really interesting how many of us go back to our core self versus how many of us stay with um, characteristics, personality traits, and things like this that we actually just tried on and borrowed from somebody else. And then our authority figures, our teachers, our parents and caregivers start to crystallize this perception of us, even though it may not be an accurate representation of who we are. This is especially true for people who have, say, like their son in the 12th house or who have like the ruler of their chart in the 12th or 
you know, they have like a, you know, they have an aspect in their chart where they're uh, some of their big three and really these big elements of like yourself and your identity are more hidden or unconscious or maybe like overshadowed by a larger placement. And this is the second pillar of this theory, right? The self-creation. And this is, again, this is just fascinating. I was having a conversation with an astrologer um, recently. Uh, they manage the Instagram account Pattern in the Stars. Um, she's brilliant. I love talking with her. But we we were kind of talking about, you know, like the fate or free will dichotomy in astrology are we this way because our natal chart fated it to be so or how much of this is our choice and our own exploration and in psychology that conversation sounds like is it nature or is it nurture were we born this way because of different like genetic factors and we were always destined to have these preferences or these belief systems or is it nurture is it what is happening in our environment that influences our development of self and I referenced that, you know, Gottfordson published this originally in 1996. Actually, one of the criticisms of her early work was that it was very deterministic and it made it sound like, you know, you were just inherently born this way and now you will be this way and you will have these beliefs, which feels a little bit more like a critique of sometimes astrology, right? Um, these people feeling like, no, you can't, you can't make all these assumptions about who I am because of what you see in my natal chart, which again feels true because there is nuance. We can look and we can make a lot of assumptions about an individual and the characteristics of their life based on what we see in the placement, but we're missing out on context. We're missing out on, um, you know, really key situational factors that allow for the nuance of the interpretation as well as like the timing of it as well. And so in 2005, um, she was a little bit more clear and you could even say, you know, like she was more explicit in discussing the concept of self-creation and that while we do have a lot of characteristics, which do feel more like biologically based or influenced and astrologers, we could say like, even though there are facets of a natal chart, which are really clear in how we would interpret these, there are still experiences that shape and inform what we choose and the beliefs that we have. And, and we still have this element of choice. You know, there is still free will even within our natal chart and the expression of, of our placements. And I'm actually going to read this line because I think it's really important. So this is a quote directly from the book. Repeated experiences consolidate an individual's genetically based characteristics, turning them into traits that gain stability across a variety of situations. We come to realize our characteristics and traits through interactions with others by observing ourselves and others' reactions to us, leading to the self-concept. And this is the area that I think Parker Palmer's book was referencing of like this moment in the Gemini phase of our life, you know, these ages, like it's really like three to five, um, as we start developing, like, you know, uh, like this is like, you know, human development theory, we start developing like categories and we start understanding, um, you know, this is big, but this is small. Um, you know, this is that, but this is the other. And I'm thinking of like the, uh, go dog, go, go dogs, go. Is that what it's called? It's like a Dr. Seuss book. Um, and it's, you know, like 
this dog is red. This dog is blue. The red dog is big. The blue dog is small. And like, this is really that like part of our like development where we start to um, identify the verses, the this is that and that is this. But we do that with ourselves as well. We start developing like this, like this concept of self and we create this concept of self. And I see this happening with my own kids. And it's, it's one thing to like read about it, right? But then it's a whole other thing to watch, to watch a child like grow and develop and to see some of these theories like really in action. Um, and I think about how, uh, my daughter, for example, I tried so hard to be a really conscious parent and to not, enforce any gender norms on my kid like we bought her you know from the boys section and the girls section we did a lot of like neutral things and then when she got older we were really free with letting her choose what she wore and what she played with and what she watched and there was a moment growing up where she did experience gender dysphoria and there was like you know conversations around like you know she didn't want to be a girl and she wanted to be a boy and we were just really like i mean i we were just open and it wasn't like a, I just wanted her to explore. Cause I think that this is like a really important piece of development and trying not to do anything that would make her feel like she was cemented into whatever she was choosing, but also just kind of like avoid, um, like forcing her into these dynamics and really like giving her the power to explore different things. And it, there were there were moments where like as a parent I felt myself having resistance to certain things and then there were other times that it was really easy for me to just have like an open dialogue and like you know I was seeing um a therapist that was helping me check myself as a parent to try to just like give my daughter the space that she needed to really really explore things because I understood that she was at a point where she was exploring personality she was exploring dynamics of self and I wanted to really like give her that exploration without me coming in with too many assumptions or you know predetermined opinions and still here she is at five and her favorite color is rainbow and everything is unicorns and magic but she also is you know like obsessed with you know Pokemon and Legos and most of her like little friends are all like you know little boys that are into fighting and ninjas and pretending like you're killing space aliens and and stuff like that but still like who she is at her core has developed to be like this very you know wearing cute dresses and um you know loving to look fancy and doing makeup and wearing the high heels and that's not anything that we like forced on her but when she tried it on some part of her resonated with that and enjoyed it she started identifying role models in her life that looked that way or behaved this way and so it's that like the repetition of it right like she started doing things more consistently and then she started getting feedback and think about you know how it feels to like try on a piece of your personality or to experiment with a version of self and to have really positive recognition oh you look so beautiful today oh you look very fancy oh you remind me just of a princess right and you start to be like oh well i like that i like this recognition that i'm getting the inverse of that is I remember growing up, I had this pair of shoes and I was obsessed with them. Like when I tell you I was obsessed with these shoes, like I wanted to wear them all the time. They were like a slingback, kind of like a kitten heel. So they made me feel like, you know, dressed up without having the pain of walking around in like four inch heels. 
and they were black, but they had this weird rainbow pattern over like the, the peephole like toe. And I just thought that they were the coolest. Like <laughs> I loved them. I loved these shoes. And I remember being in the shoe store and trying them on and being like so excited to show my mom and my little sister and my mom were both like, those are hideous. And I was like, no, they're not. They're so beautiful. And I love these and I, I want to buy them. And I really kind of like remember having to, or it felt like I was talking my mom into letting me get these shoes. And so reluctantly, like she did buy them and I would wear them as again, as often as possible, but mostly like I wore heels when I went to church and I got a lot of people commenting on them that they were ugly. Like people did not like these shoes and that was so hard for me and it made me feel like I needed to suppress that part of myself. Like, what do I have bad taste? And I was like, I don't, I, I don't know what's going on because like I see these shoes and I feel like I can see myself in these shoes and they are fantastic and phenomenal and they're comfortable and, and practical while still being, you know, whatever I, I could talk all day about these shoes. But that was a moment where I felt like I needed to suppress a preference of mine, suppress like a part of myself because I got really negative feedback about it. And so this is where, you know, we, we do things enough, but then other people's reactions to ourselves really like lead to this like self-concept. You didn't hear me in that instance being like, oh, well, like I love this pair of shoes. Other people hate them. Well, that's just fine. I like different shoes than them. It was like, oh, I have bad taste, right? Like I have bad fashion sense or something like that with my daughter. And I don't know. And like, you know, when she grows up and is in therapy, I'm sure she'll have like a lot more like good ideas around what this experience was for her. But as she's like, you know, going through this phase of like building her own self-concept, it's not just what mom and dad are saying to her, but it's also, you know, what are grandmas and grandpas and what are her friends doing and what feedback is she getting from her teachers? And when it happens consistently, this is really like that formation of the sense of self. And this is why even when we are babies, we don't have an awareness of these like differences, but we still somehow grow up with the same like belief systems and it is influenced by uh, you know, our sex or gender expression by our socioeconomic status, by our age and things like that. It's because of the, the feedback that we get from the collective, from the society around us. And it really influences our ability to build a sense of self concept. For some people, this is really, really difficult. Right. And that's again, like people that have these like challenging placements in the chart. Um, I had a client that had uh, a lot of personal placements in Libra in the 12th house. And there was a really low sense of self-concept. There was a really low awareness of like self or self-creation of like, who really am I and what are my preferences and what are my needs? Because likely it was overshadowed by authority figures coming in and really giving a lot of feedback on different characteristic traits or qualities that maybe didn't actually ever resonate with the individual. But that's how you develop like some of these like character traits and preferences, right? I also find this line in the book really interesting. Um, it says, thus a wealth or lack of exposure to a variety of experiences influences the expression of an individual's genetic make makeup. Further, adolescents rarely have sufficient experiences to draw on when they are making choices related to education and career. And I think this is interesting because there's a moment where your self-identity kind of like, I don't want to say stops mattering, but we don't focus on it as much. And I think about the adolescence. I think about like all of the angsty teens and I am a Pluto and Scorpio person. So when I was a teenager, MySpace and emo 
was all the rage, right? Like the coolest thing that you could be was like an emo person that had like RAR in your tagline on MySpace or something, right? And there's this this sense of like coming forward and like like the people who like wear fashion trends to the extreme are like teenagers. Um, and this is like a huge population that businesses focus on selling to, like they sell to children. But if you can really get like adolescents hooked on something, there's like been this TikTok trend where I see so many people talking about how they wear the same clothes that they identified as quote unquote cool when they were 15 years old. Cause there's this moment where actually like people stop recognizing you as an individual and you become like part of this like mass, like you're just like a student and you're doing these things, but you as like an individual is less emphasized. And I feel like there's this reaction to it of really like going hard on your identity and trying to individualize yourself and trying to be really extreme in the expression of yourself. Like your hobbies are your identity. And a lot of that is in what you wear and how you um, put yourself forward. This is also that Saturn opposition phase in our life. Okay. So it's really interesting about the, the idea that, you know, we rarely at that age have sufficient experiences to draw on when we're making choices related to education and career. We really haven't done that much yet. Right. Which is again, like why it's crazy to me that there are some practices across the world where you take people's like eighth grade test scores and determine right then and there, whether or not they will be going to college or going to technical and trade schools. Or you start asking children around this age, like, well, you know, what, what do you want to do in college? This is how we should start formalizing what classes you take as a high schooler to help prepare you for, you know, your college admissions. And here's how you start. I, I remember this being such a focus in high school. I remember being like 14 years old and making decisions on extracurriculars based on what I thought I would be majoring in and doing for work. Like how asinine is that? That makes like. <laughs> That makes no fucking sense. Sorry for saying the F word. That makes no sense. That makes no sense to me. But it's it's a really common experience. Like I know that I'm not the only one. And so it's just interesting that we really are still struggling to get a clear self-concept that we haven't even finished our cognitive growth yet. And again, we are already being put into boxes. Um, and so really the only self-concept that we have is that which has been reinforced by our external environment. And that's heavily influenced on some of these aspects of our identity, this ascendant sign first house stuff, right? Like what people can see and observe about us just by looking at us, which is our age, our gender expression and sex, our ethnicity, and a little bit of socioeconomic status as well. Okay. I could talk about these topics all day, but I'm going to continue moving forward in the theory. So the third pillar of this theory is circumscription. And this is again, where this and then compromise are the ones that I find myself talking with clients a lot about lately. And these sometimes feel so obvious, but really it's not until you sit down and you actually talk about it and reflect on it, that all of a sudden you realize just how influential this is in your life. You don't even need to be aware of this theory. This happens to everybody. So what happens in circumscription is that you start to view different jobs. You think about like job titles or career industries or something like that. And you start to, you start to categorize these things into that which is acceptable and that which is not acceptable. And, and this is again like 
you know, we, we grow up and we start learning how to like, you know, this is a red dog. This is a blue dog. This is a small dog. This is a big dog. And so we start doing this with career through circumscription and we start saying this, this job or this body of work is okay. This job or this body of work is not okay. I have two examples of this. One is I had a cousin that when she was very, very little, she wanted to be a table dancer. Now she was very, very little and she didn't know about the world of sex work. She didn't know about the world of like exotic dancing or anything like that, but she loved to dance and she loved to stand on tables where she could be seen, right? Like she wanted people to see her dancing and there was an element of danger, right? Like don't dance near the edge of the table. So there was a lot of um, athletic skill that went into a small child dancing on a table without getting hurt. And she wanted to be a table dancer. And naturally, an adult reaction to that was like, no, 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 no. No, 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 little girl. Like, we do not, nope, this is not okay. This is not appropriate. We do not dance on tables. Um, and this is a reaction of, you know, like adults having a different relationship to the world of work and what feels appropriate or inappropriate for children to be saying and stuff like that. Um, and so this was a clear example of things that all of a sudden were not okay. Anything that was closely related to sex work or using your body to make money was immediately labeled as not okay, which is really interesting to consider what this person does now for work. Um, they are a hairstylist and makeup artist, but they have currently a longstanding relationship with a photographer who does boudoir photo shoots and a lot of like body acceptance and owning your body as a sexual a vessel and feeling like beautiful and at home in your body is a big part of what this individual does. So I think that's like a really interesting correlation. But then similarly, I was talking with someone recently about how when they were younger, they felt like no matter what they did, their work had to influence climate change in some way. That was seen as acceptable. Anything that was not having an influence on climate change was in the zone of an unacceptable alternative. So this happens in a variety of ways where we start thinking about what we want to do for work. We start talking about what we like. And for whatever reason, we start deeming this as acceptable and okay, and I can do this. Or we move it into the, the this is unacceptable, this is not okay, and this is not what I want to be doing. This happens really unconsciously. This happens without a lot of uh, work. You know what I mean? Like, this is, again, we just, we hear things, we're exposed to things, and then we start categorizing it. It's not like we ask all individuals to sit down and on the left side of the paper write down everything that's acceptable for you to do for work and on the right side write down everything that is unacceptable we just start building these beliefs and opinions and it really progresses through the life cycle so again kind of going through like uh the stages of human development when we are between the ages of three and five years old, we develop the orientation to size and power. And we do this with people as well. So this could start, uh, this, this could be the area where we start thinking about like sex differences or gender differences because of the biological impact it has on many of us. Um, I, like for example, for me, um, I knew very early on that I was never going to be a professional football player. That was never a reality for me. It was never going to happen because I was a very skinny little girl and I never saw myself growing up to be a six foot plus 200 something pound athlete. I never saw that happening. And so 
professional football player immediately moved to the unacceptable option list. Okay. That was clearly never going to happen. Uh, and so this is what we start doing is we start thinking about our, our size and our power, our strength. And this is where biologically speaking, some of these things in our biology start influencing what we think is acceptable versus not acceptable. Building off of that, between the ages of six and eight, this is when we start developing an orientation to sex roles. Now, this really requires cultural competency from the helper because we are not universally as a species very um, consistent in what is a man's job versus what is a woman's job, for example. And then we also introduce the concept of gender fluidity and uh, you know, transgender experiences and things like this. So this really like requires like clear and thoughtful consideration and cultural competency and um, diversity training to be effective when you're using this with clients. But if you think about this, just like very plainly, the dichotomy thinking of, um, you know, men do this and women do this, for example, I, this is one that I fought against. Um, I grew up in a culture where it was very, very normal for a woman to be a stay at home mom and for that to be just straight up like a career option. And I never really felt comfortable with that. I never really wanted to do that. The religion that I was raised in, which I wanted to be like a religious leader. I wanted to be a spiritual speaker. I wanted to sit at a pulpit. I wanted to write sermons and I wanted to have congregations listen to me as I shared spiritual wisdom, right? I've always wanted to do that, but that was what men did. That's not what women did in the religion that I grew up in. Women raised babies and had children. Similarly, like my husband really, like, I remember like when we were first dating, I asked him like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he was like, I don't know, but I've always really wanted to be like involved with my children. And so that's how we've built our marriage. That's how we've built our life is he takes on the primary responsibility of being the caregiver for our children and I work. And that was really, really hard for some of our family members to accept in the beginning because we, they had built these perceptions of what was and what was not appropriate based on our gender identities and our sex roles compared to what we grew up in. The third stage of circumscription happens between ages nine and 13. And I think that this one is actually really interesting to talk about with people. And I think that this is also where the fourth house as well as the second house provide some really interesting conversation. This is where we start to establish what is or what has social value. This is where we start thinking about what is prestigious and what has status. This is kind of in part like, you know, what do your peers find valuable, but also broader society. Children at this age start to become aware of hierarchies across jobs. And this is, you know, uh, the difference in a school setting, for example, between the janitorial staff, the teachers, and then the principal. Um, you know, for example, you start to acknowledge that there is a hierarchy and you start to eliminate occupations that have unacceptably low prestige. Um, or you start to eliminate ones that feel too difficult to attain, like it's too far away from you or what you think is 
possible. So if we're going back to my example where, you know, I knew that I couldn't be an NFL player, um, you know, that maybe if I wanted to work in the NFL, there are other things that I could do, though. You know, there's a lot of other things that go into it, like being the coach, being a cheerleader, being a water boy or, you know, something like that. And so then I would look at stage two of like my sex. Okay, well, what do women typically do? Well, there may be more of like a sports broadcaster or they might be like a physical therapist or they might be like one of the cheerleaders or something like that. And then around nine and 13 is when I start deciding, well, I wouldn't want to be like a water boy. That's like, you know, that's intolerably low prestige. Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Being a coach seems really far away. Like that seems like something that's really unattainable and that's, you know, like the head of the hierarchy or whatever. So now I'm going to be like, well, maybe like sports broadcasting or maybe like physical therapy or something like that. Maybe I could be a trainer, you know, that, that maybe makes a bit more sense because there's more people in my gender doing it. it you know, it's a prestige level that doesn't feel too far away, but is also not, you know, intolerable. Um, so maybe I can do this. And this, again, will be informed by what my peers find valuable or, you know, um, how does society talk about these types of jobs? And we start determining what we want to do. And again, this is all unconscious. We're really not writing lists and keeping track and making spreadsheets and stuff like that. But our career choices up until like this point, it seems to be really like uh, and actually, I'm, I'm going to quote the book right here because I think it really perfectly captures this sentiment. It seems to be mostly a byproduct of wanting to belong, be respected, and live a comfortable life as defined by the individual's reference group. And this is something that I've talked about. If you've had a vocational astrology reading with me, then I've talked about how all jobs exist because there are problems. We are solving problems for other people through no matter what your job is, it exists because there is a problem that needs to be solved. And we find ourselves in groups and communities. We find ourselves living in groups and communities. And to do this successfully, there is an exchange of value. You guys let me be part of your group, right? I'm part of the larger organization, which gives me a sense of safety and belonging and in return for letting me live with you, here are some things that I can do to provide value. So get rid of the idea of, you know, what we experience more today with like the exploitative labor built under an out of balance capitalistic society and go back to like the fundamental, like, why do we work? Right. What we're just offering our goods and services in exchange for this ability to congregate and live with other people. And so there's this really fundamental drive to be part of a group, to be part of the community, to be part of the tribe. And this is also why I say you need to talk about the relationship houses. You need to talk about your peers, what types of relationships and what types of communities and groups do you want to be a part of when you work? Because ultimately, we have this instinct, we have this drive to be part of someone. And this is really clear as we're making decisions. We try to fit into the status quo. We try to fit into what will be socially acceptable with our peer group. And this is also why cultural competency and diversity training, I think, is critical when you're working with people. Um, because there could be a lot of people that have grown up in a culture which has all these preferences and then when they relocate and live somewhere else 
you find that this has changed and it's really hard to integrate yourself into a society when you've built this concept of work and this concept of self around a different set of boundaries or qualifiers, right? So stage four, this is ages 14 and older. And so again, this is that moment of the Saturn opposition in our lives where we become aware that we need to consider um, the orientation to our internal versus external, like self, I guess, <laughs> like who you feel internally versus who you have um or like the version of yourself that you have curated for the people around you, right? This is the Jessica who wants to wear these really interesting and unique shoes versus the Jessica that doesn't want to wear them because it draws too much attention and, and there's too many conversations on whether or not this is a good idea or if they're cute or not, right? So I'm starting to make decisions around career, around who I feel I am on the inside versus this persona that I project out into the world. And this is a little bit like the the contrast that we experience between the ascendant and the midheaven. Everyone has their ascendance, well not everyone. A, a lot of people experience the midheaven square the ascendant. You have the ascendant in the 1st house, midheaven in the 10th house, although for some of us, right, it doesn't fall in the 10th. But there's this natural tension point between the self and our public image or social legacy. It's around this age that you actually begin clarifying what your interests are, what your values are, and also your abilities. And I talked a lot about this in my job search in the Saturn cycle episode, because this is also when people start going to work, right? They actually start having part-time jobs or it's more normal to do like volunteer type things with, you know, different organizations and stuff like that. Or you are really a part of organized sports where you have there's higher stakes to if you're winning or losing games so you start really like testing your capabilities and clarifying your values and identifying which groups you are or are not a part of and Gottfriedson points out that in stages one through three you're really focusing on rejecting that which is unacceptable right like well people my size and with my amount of power don't do these things. Um, people with my same gender expression and sexual like role in society don't do these things. Um, my peer groups don't like this, so I don't do these things. Stage four is unique because it's actually focused more on your identity. Or you could even say the psychological self. And I think that this is, again, really important to call back to something that I said earlier, which is you're still at this age, you your brain has not fully developed yet, and you really still have quite a limited scope of options of what is available to you. Because up to this point, everything that you have been categorizing with, you know, the uh well, just the, the different stages that we've talked about, right? Everything that you've been categorizing into either acceptable or unacceptable, it's really only that which you are already aware of. And this is really important to call out um, because the world of work is actually quite vast and really big and we're not aware of everything that is available to us. And so we have a very narrowed vision and understanding of the world of work. And still within that limited scope, we have been 
compartmentalizing and categorizing what we think is an option for us, what we think is acceptable to us. And so this moves us into the fourth pillar of this theory, and that is compromise. This is also where you start to really feel the pressure to make these decisions. Again, in some societies, this age, this part of your life is where you start determining what you have access to in terms of higher education. Are you someone that will even have access to college or will you be put directly into a trade school? Um, you know, in some societies, we feel like we're a bit more progressive than this. But as I mentioned, it's around this age that I started having to choose which like electives I would take. And I started prioritizing which extracurriculars I would participate in based on how they would set me up for my future, for this career trajectory. And that's also a bit of the Saturn opposition, right? Saturn is what are you committing to? And if Saturn demands mastery, you have to invest time to it. You have to work at it, right? You have to practice these things. And so you, you're, I guess, the expectation for someone in this age range to commit to something grows really strong. And this is where, you know, you're meeting with guidance counselors and, um, and this future focused version of yourself becomes a really important player in these conversations. And it's just so funny being an astrologer as well as a career professional, because even just the language, I mean, Gottfriedson, I'm, I'm not sure, but I don't believe that Gottfriedson is an astrologer. And so, um, or even like the people who wrote the uh this book that they're you know paraphrasing the research of Gottfriedson. They use this language. Adolescents begin to consider more concrete aspects of different occupations. Even just that language sounds so Saturnian, right? That which is real, that which is tangible, that which is material. Okay. And so uh these career goals, these you know vocational aspirations they're kind of a byproduct of a few different things. Number one, it's the, like, what's accessible to you, right? And accessible not only in, am I going to be able to afford to go to school, you know, are the careers that I've identified for myself, how much education do they require, or how much investment in higher education is required, and does that feel accessible to me? You know, is that something that I, I even um, think is realistic for me? This was actually something that when I was growing up, it didn't even cross my mind because what I was doing was so like collegiate focused. I knew that I was going to go to college. It wasn't even a question in my mind. Like that's what I was going to do. And my parents didn't go to my parents, my parents didn't graduate from university. My older brother was attending at the time and my grandfather had graduated, but I'm a little bit of like a first gen when it comes to college, but I still just like, that's what I was going to do. And I never doubted that. And I never questioned it. And I also had this belief that that's what everyone I went to school with was going to do as well. Everyone was going to go to college. And then a lot of the people that I graduated with, and I had a small graduating class, there was only um, 106 of us. So this wasn't like a massive graduating class. But I remember that it was really interesting to see who went to school, but then who actually finished school. I just believe that that's what everyone did. Like you didn't like have an option or a choice or whatever. Um, but you know, the reality of that was something totally different for a lot of my peers that wasn't accessible and it also didn't fit into what they wanted to do. And this is also why I think 
it's really, really important to have a good conversation with your astrologer and for astrologers to be well-versed in the idea of privilege and access points and being able to talk with people around like, what is accessible to you? This is what drives me crazy when I see, well, I don't know. I want to say it drives me crazy. And I also, I get it, but I feel, I feel a physical reaction when I read content online around, you know, what, like what placement makes a good lawyer? Or if you have this, um, if you have this configuration in your chart, you would be excellent at X, Y, and Z. Some of that, there's some layer of truth to that, right? Like, you know, we might see this placement come up for people. However, not everyone has that access. Not everyone has that privilege and it does take privilege. You know what I mean? So I think that being able to have this conversation with clients is is really critical and being able to work with a professional that can be sensitive and understanding to what feels accessible to you, whether it's a limiting belief system or if it's an actual socioeconomic barrier, this is an important piece of the conversation. And then there's also the compatibility. This is the person environment fit. And actually I love um, Holland's theory with the RISIC code, and I will do an entire episode about that one. And I've done some pretty, well, I found it interesting research um, in overlaying Holland's RISIC hexagon over the natal chart, but that's a different podcast episode. But we have this idea of like person environment fit, like with what I know about myself to be true. And this is like what I established about myself in the second pillar of this, the self-creation with what I know about my like identity and the characteristics that I believe to be true about myself, do I think this is a good environment to work in? And I think one other really like classic examples of this is that if you are a free spirit, radical thinker, then joining the military may not be right for you, right? If you are someone who instinctively opposes authority and doesn't want to do what you're told, joining the military may not be a good fit. For other people, that is a really good fit and it fits a lot with their characteristics and, and those things that they know to be true about themselves, right? And then there is the idealistic aspirations, which might have to give when you consider realistic possibilities. And again, this is something that I talked about in my second episode, Job Search in the Saturn Cycle, um, definitely go back and listen to that episode if this is interesting to you. And if you're curious about what I've been saying around, you know, oh, like the Saturn opposition or Saturn square or something like that, um, I break that down more in that episode. But there's this, you know, we, we realize what is realistic. You know, I wanted to be the president. That may not be realistic, but what can I do in local government or what can I do in nonprofits, for example? So in circumscription, we start eliminating things. And in compromise, we start to modify the alternatives because we don't have access um, or because there's something that's like, you know, not acceptable about it, or it feels like not like the right fit. Um, and we, we start to find like, well, what are other options? What are elements of this? Like, what else could I be doing with this? Uh, little fun fact about me is that I was a competitive dancer my entire childhood and adolescence. And so when I entered university, I actually chose to be a dance major. 
That's what I elected as my major when I was a freshman coming in and I started taking dance classes. And I, I just did not see myself being a professional dancer. I was like, I don't live in the right area. I'm not good enough to be like a JLo backup dancer. And maybe even if I get better, I don't know that this is really like what seems like realistic. The prestige felt too far away from me. And so I had to rule it out because the hierarchy didn't seem accessible. But I thought, well, maybe I could be a dance teacher, though. You know, I could teach at a college level. I could teach, you know, I grew up obviously with dance teachers. You know, I could run like a tiny little studio or, you know, something like that. That seemed more realistic, right? The aspiration of I'm going to be a professional dancer, um, and then modifying it to, well, maybe I could just teach dance, you know, and maybe these are the types of dance that I could like specialize in or something. So we start to modify what we believe to be accessible based on what we think is realistic. And so I found myself having these conversations with clients based on like, for example, an earlier conversation was I've only ever done these types of roles. I don't even know what else I would be doing. And that feels defeating to this individual because they don't like the roles that they've been doing, right? They don't like and enjoy the work. And this is hard because they received really good feedback around the work that they do in this capacity because it matches what is, you know, common in their peer group um, because they like have some level of competency in it, but it really doesn't match with this concept of self-creation, Right. And they found themselves making decisions actually while their brain was still developing, because, again, you don't really finish your brain development until 25. And this person started doing this type of work right out of high school. And actually, this individual is going through their Saturn return. And so, you know, again, like Saturn is a huge player in this and some of these critical ages, you know, they're coming up on this uh, decision, like, what am I committing myself to? And now that I've been through a Saturn cycle, now that I've explored some of these things, and now that I've clarified the hierarchy, it's good to take like inventory of these different stages of development in circumscription and try to identify like, where was this my decision? Where did I do this unconsciously? And how can I work more consciously with it? Or how can I make this my decision as opposed to having such a strong influence from our peer groups? And from our, you know, parents or caregivers or those figures of authority in our life when we're growing up. Now, in this theory, from my understanding, Goffertson believes that you never undo this belief. You never actually uh, detangle this circumscription. And part of me feels like that could be true. Because it takes a lot of work and some serious like EMDR to change those neurological pathways when we have thoughts and ideas they travel so quickly in our brain and they follow like the path of least resistance right so they go down what is familiar and i think that you can work through this a little bit but i do think that you need help so working with um, a career counselor working with a coach working with a vocational astrologer um, working with a therapist or something like that. But I think you can do this if you have help doing it because on your own or with a friend or with a boss or something like that, like you're just going to find yourself engaging in more of these things where they're imposing their own 
beliefs, their own versions of you, their own preferences around hierarchy and what is socially acceptable and not. And it will be harder to, again, clarify like your own opinion, your own inner knowing and your own authentic expression of self. So that feels good. That feels good, right? We, we like this theory. We find value in this theory. We can see how this theory has shown up in our own life. Again, depending on where you're at, if you are an astrologer, I hope this gives you a little bit more acumen around legitimate career development theory and that you could connect those areas of the natal chart to bring a richer reading to your client. If you are a career coach or counselor and you're listening to this because you want to invite the concept of astrology, um, or if because you didn't learn about this theory when you were preparing yourself to um, do this type of work with clients, and I hope that this was interesting and useful to you. And if you're a job seeker, or you're someone who cares a lot about your career, and you really liked this, I hope that it's useful for you to self-reflect. And I just want to remind you that if you do want to book readings with me, you can find the information on my website, www.thatwitchfromwork.com. I have some pre-recorded options, but if you really want to get into this type of depth, then I do recommend booking a live reading with me. And you can find that information on my website. It will redirect you to accessibleastrology.com. And that's because I am a network astrologer through Accessible Astrology. Um, and if this episode resonated, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could give me a rating, share this with your friends and family. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I do plan on reviewing a handful of the theories that I learned in my master's program and that I use regularly with clients. If there is a specific element of the natal chart of vocational astrology or career development acumen that you are especially curious about, please connect with me on social media. I've had a few TikTok comments requesting specific episodes, and so I'm planning on recording those soon. If you want your voice to be heard, find me on Instagram, TikTok, connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know.